All right, good morning. It's good to see you here. Those were pictures from our week of camp that just ended, and uh, we had a, a good week. I'm glad to see we had some, uh, some pictures that were a little compromising, maybe some videos that could be used for uh, uh, some bad motives there, but, but none of those made it into that, so that, that was good to see. Uh, but thank you, for parents. Uh, the, I think the kids had a, gr a great time. I know that they had a time of just being saturated in the Word of God and being confronted with biblical truth. And so uh, from that perspective, I think it was a great success. And uh, so th that was good. Um, remember this morning, this is a, the last week for our help office offering. Uh, it'll be taken up at the end of the service. And I just encourage you, that's a great ministry. It's a ministry in our community that is in need. Uh, and so uh, I just ask us as a church to consider giving to that and to give uh, generously. We also have uh, on Wednesday nights coming up in the month of July, we have men's and women's Bible studies. It'll be about four weeks long. Uh, I'd encourage you to plan on being here. It starts July 11th uh, and it'll go for four weeks after that. So uh, make sure we'll have sign up sheets probably next week on that. So we'll go ahead and get started this morning and I'll have Jared come and read the scripture for us. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 John. It's one of the little letters of John right before you get into Jude and Revelation. you got 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, and Revelation. So if you've got that in your Bibles there, read along with me. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but you may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use ink, paper, and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and to talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We're thankful, God, that even in a, a small letter like this, we see uh, marks of grace. We see truth, God. We hear the voice of the Spirit speaking to us, commanding us to walk in love toward one another. Lord, so that fits in with the theme, all that we've been talking about, all that we've been preaching toward and teaching toward lately in these uh, past few weeks about the need to, to be a loving church, a hospitable church. And here we see again yet another commandment to love each other and part of that love that should permeate and be a, a, a mark of the church is a love for truth and a love for one another 
And so God, I pray that you would help us to do both, that we would not love truth to the exclusion of our brothers and sisters, and that we would not love our brothers and sisters to the exclusion of the truth, because there is a pitfall on both sides. God, if we overemphasize one of those loves over another, we can err. And God, we desire to hold both of these things at the same time. And God, yet John, who wrote this, an apostle full of truth, yet he saw the need, God, for face-to-face fellowship, face-to-face Uh, communication and he says that there was a joy to be completed in that and so father i pray that you would help us to recognize and to realize that all the advances in in technology the ability to email and text and and uh, all these different apps that we can use to communicate are helpful tools but they're not ultimate tools and we pray god that you would help us to never forsake or neglect the face-to-face a person-to-person communication and contact that we need to have in order to be a healthy church and a loving church and in order to live out the love and grace and mercy of God with one another. So God, we pray that you would help us, that you would help us to be countercultural in these ways, to hold to truth, God, to hold to love for one another and to communicate openly and face-to-face and not forsake, God, that one-on-one connection with one another. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's have our ushers come forward at this time. And that song really does hit on two central truths about our worship. First of all, our worship uh, comes not just from our voices singing songs to the Lord, but but the Lord is concerned with the inward disposition of our heart. He's, He's concerned that we're not just, you know, uttering words out of our mouth, but he wants to know that our hearts are truly moved in in praise and worship of the Lord Uh, and then the second great truth is just that 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 this worship is all about him it's not about us and the church in our day and time has made worship all about us and all about our preferences and all about what we like and we've turned it upside down our worship is about the Lord pray with me this morning our Heavenly Father you are worthy of worship you are worthy of all of our praise And you're not just worthy of us singing a song once in a while. You're worthy of true and complete devotion. As we're going to see this morning, you're you're worthy of our very life. And so, Lord, we, we come to you this morning. We want to pour ourselves out, not just in this worship service this morning, but but as we move forward going from here, we want to give you our lives in response to what you have done for us. We pray that this would be pleasing to you, that our our worship of you would be genuine that it would come from our hearts. We remember the words of your son, Jesus Christ, how he said that those who worship must worship in spirit, that is within the inward part of our being and in truth. And we pray that we would do that this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, let's go ahead and come back to order if we could. And uh, if you have your Bibles this morning, turn to Romans chapter 12. Our children can be dismissed at this time if they haven't already gone out for Children's Church. And uh, turn to Romans chapter 12. We're continuing our series through, you know, just the idea of biblical community. So we're continuing our series on biblical community. The, the reason that we're in this series, just for those of you, if you haven't been here with us, is we just really recognize about our, ourselves that we're not where we want to be as a church. We're, we're not really where we need to be in terms of... Uh, uh, matching up the, the New Testament community, the community that we see in the life of the church in the book of Acts. So we saw last week uh, that, that that community uh, consisted of a close-knit fellowship, a family-like fellowship. They greeted 
like family. They, they ate like family. They ate together. They practiced hospitality. They, they met needs in, in the community of believers. And we just saw, again, in the book of Acts, that the church is like a family. And uh, I think most churches aspire to be family-like, but most of the churches I've been around are not like a family in so many different ways. And we want to press toward that. We believe, uh, we, we saw that uh, one of the markers of a New Testament church was not only the apostles' doctrine, but also fellowship. And so equally as important in, in very many ways as having the right beliefs about the Bible and the Word of God and who Jesus is, and that is very important. We don't want to minimize that. As, in, as important as that is, so it is important to have biblical kind of community. We remind ourselves what Jesus said, that we would be known <coughs> as his disciples by our love for one another, by, by our outworking of this community. <coughs> and we've just highlighted the fact that I don't think we're at a place as a church, as a New Testament church, where people would look at us and say, there's something utterly unique about Union Baptist Church. There is something utterly unique about the kind of fellowship that Union Baptist Church, there's a, there's a mark of love there that is so clear, they really must be uh, followers of Jesus Christ. We, we are not there. And so we, we talked about some barriers uh, to that kind of biblical community. We've talked about superficial love, which is what we so often give. We're kind of apathetic toward one another. We don't have genuine love, the kind of love that we are supposed to have. And so to fill that void, we, we offer a synthetic love, a, 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 a love that is uh, superficial. We, we greet one another, we talk to one another, but it only stays uh, just, just a very at a very shallow level. And then Jared preached and he talked about the, the barrier of fear and indifference and how sometimes maybe we've had bad experiences in the past in different relationships, so we've kind of walled ourselves off and we stay in our own little world. And then a few weeks ago, I looked at the barrier of self-focus and how we are so often just focused on what we have going on, our careers, our jobs, our families, our homes, our cars, our 401ks. We put all of those things uh, on, on the top of our list, and then we say somewhere down that list, if I have any money, if I have any time, if I have any focus left, then maybe I could practice a little hospitality. Maybe I could have some community on the fringes of my life. Uh, but the New Testament says that we're supposed to consider one another more than we consider ourselves. And so we're to be like Christ in that way. What I want to do now this week and probably next week uh, is talk about hospitality. We, we looked at the early church and we saw that, that they were eating together. They were practicing hospitality. And I think that's key to uh, a key marker, a key piece to getting where we want to go. If we want to achieve a family-like atmosphere, if we want to have true biblical New Testament kind of community in our church, that kind of, that kind of fellowship, the way that we're going to get there, I believe in a large part, is through hospitality. If God is going to grant us to experience the kind of biblical community we saw last week in the book of Acts, it's going to be through the means of practicing hospitality. I quoted last week and maybe the week before that from Alexander Strzok and his book on hospitality. And he says this, and I, I really, this has just stuck out to me and, and I keep coming back to it because I want you to remember it as well. He said, unless we open the doors of our homes to one another, 
the reality of the local church as a close-knit family of loving brothers and sisters is only a theory. I could, I said last week, I could preach for the next hundred years if I lived that long, which I'm not going to, but if I did, I could preach for a hundred years on biblical community and unless we begin to open up our homes to one another and invite one another into our lives in a more personal way, the reality of the church becoming like a close-knit family is only going to be a theory. It will be something we can talk about. It could be something you owe amen. It could be something that sounds good in theory, but it will not become a reality unless we open our lives and open our homes to one another. And so this morning we look at Romans chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 12. I'm going to begin at verse 1. We're really just looking at one verse, but I think we're going to need to know the context uh, of, of this command. So Romans 12, verse number 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For, the, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Seek to show hospitality. That's our text this morning, but we're going to be looking at the, the whole context, and we're going to be seeing some truths from God's Word uh, about hospitality. And the first thing that we see about hospitality is that hospitality is a response to God's grace. If you have your notes uh, from the bulletin, you're keeping up with that, that is the first one. It is a response to God's grace. You see, Romans chapter 12, if we understand the whole sort of context of the book of Romans, and I think we need to in order to understand these commands, Romans chapter 12 is, is kind of like a hinge in, in the book of Romans. It is closing out one section, uh, and it's opening a, a section that is more practical in terms of giving uh, commands for the Christian life. It's a transition chapter into some of the practical exhortations. This is the way Paul often writes in, in his letters. He starts out by saying, 
This is who God is. This is what God has done through Jesus Christ in the gospel. This is about your salvation. And he teaches us very deep theology. And then he will come and he will transition. And he says, okay, because of that, because of these realities, because of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, now here are some practical applications that these are some commands for you to do. And you do them in light of and because of what God has done for you in the gospel. And so in chapter 12, verse 1, many people have uh, noted and, and highlighted in, in my English translation here, therefore, comes, you know, three or four words in. Uh, but really, in, in the Greek, this therefore is the first word in, in chapter 12. Therefore, because of everything from chapters 1 through 11, because of all that God has done for you in Jesus Christ, therefore, here's some things that you need to do in response. And he says, uh, he tells us why. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. The mercies of God is what he's been explaining. The mercies of God go all the way back to chapter 1 and go through, ver and go through chapter 11. They're all the things that God has done for us through Jesus Christ. So let's just refresh our memory here. Don't worry, I'm not going to preach the whole book of Romans. Uh, Romans chapter 1. Uh, we see that we were uh, people who have, uh, although we clearly perceived the reality of God, Romans 1 tells us, we, we perceived God's uh, existence and some things about God, yet we as his creatures, Romans 1 teach us, have rejected God. We know that God's there. We know because of his creation. We know because when we look around, we see the things that God has made and they point us to the one who made them. And yet, Despite the fact that we see the reality of God all around us, we suppress that truth and we go off into our sin. The result of this is that God hands us over to our sinful desires and there's all kinds of wicked immorality that comes as the end result of our rejecting our creator. Chapter 2 then turns from from all of humanity and it speaks directly to the religious person because there's a lot of people that could have read chapter one and say yes those wicked vile people who do those kind of things but chapter two turns the focus and he says in chapter two verse three do you suppose oh man you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves that you will escape the judgment of God and he goes on in chapter two to show that so often the religious people, the people that think, I'm glad I'm not like those wicked, vile sinners out there. They end up being the people who are doing the same things. And, and Paul says, you are guilty as well. So chapter three comes and Paul concludes that all of us, religious, non-religious, the people who are in the most vile, most wicked kind of sin in their life, and the person who sits on the pew every Sunday morning at, at church, all of us are in the same boat. We are all condemned before God. We are all sinners. So chapter 3, verse 9 says this, What then? Are we Jews any better off? We religious people that have the law of God? No, we're not at all any better off. For we have already charged, Paul says, that all, all people, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. We are all guilty before God. 
But Romans 3 through 5, those chapters begin to give us the new, good news. Rome 1 through 3 gives us the bad news. We're all sinners. We're all condemned before God. But Romans 3 through 5 shows us the good news that we can be saved by grace through faith. And that's the only way that we could be saved because of God's grace in our lives. We are sinners. We're guilty before God. The only hope that any of us have is the compassionate grace of God. It's not going to be because of our works either. It's through resting and trusting in Jesus Christ. So Romans 3.22 says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. If you're here this morning and you are right with God, it is not because you are religious. It is not because you go to church. It is not because you've been baptized. It is not because you give to the poor. It is not because of anything that you have done. If you are right with God this morning, if you have hope of heaven in eternity, the reason for that hope is grace, the grace of God that comes as a gift to you. We're saved by grace through faith, by believing and resting, trusting in the work of Jesus Christ all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This grace, this gift is received when we believe in Jesus Christ. Well, Romans 6 and 7 show us that not only are we saved from the penalty of sin, but we're also actually saved from the power of sin. Because the reality is all of us understand uh, as human beings, we are under the dominion of sin. You can tell yourselves all day long, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to be that kind of person anymore. I don't want to say those things anymore. I don't want to gossip anymore. I don't want to lust anymore. I don't want to have greed or pride in my heart anymore. You can tell yourself that all day long, but the Bible teaches that we are under the power of sin. So as much as we might want to fight against it, we are under the dominion of sin. But by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, he frees us. He gives us new spiritual life so that we are no longer under the power and the control of sin. We're delivered then not only from the penalty of sin, but we're also delivered from the power of sin. Romans chapter 8 shows us that now we've been, as believers, we're given the Spirit. We have life in the Spirit. There's no condemnation for us because we're in the Spirit. And we have the Spirit, and that means that we're heirs of God and that we have a future hope of glory, Romans 8 tells us. The, the Spirit is a down payment that tells us there's more to come. Your body is going to be glorified. You're going to receive a new glorified body and be in heaven with the Lord. That's Romans 8. Romans 9 looks back and says all of this happened because God chose to show His grace and His mercy to you. It was a sovereign choice of the Lord to demonstrate his divine mercy. Romans 10 and 11 ask the question, well, what about all of this in light of God's Old Testament promises and his Old Testament people? And Romans 10 and 11 demonstrate how this salvation that God has given is in, actually in line with God's promises to his Old Testament people. And so we can rest secure that if God makes a promise, he's going to keep that promise. And so all of that is just sort of a delineation, a laying out of our salvation, what God has done for us in Christ. And then he starts chapter 11, he says, therefore, by the mercies of God, 
because you were a God-rejecting, wicked person, because you were a hypocritical, religious person who had to be saved and could only be saved by the grace of God being poured out in your life, because that is a reality, because God has given wave after wave of kindness and mercy to you because he has poured out all of his goodness on you in your life because all of those things now let me tell you some things that God wants you to do in your life here are some commands and so when we look at this command to hospitality Romans chapter 13 or chapter 12 verse 13 contribute to the needs of the saints seek to show hospitality The reality is we have to do that in light of what God has done for us. The the right motivation is going to be the grace of God. If God has so lavished his kindness on us and welcomed us into his life, into his family, into his home, if he has done that purely out of grace, how can we respond to his command to practice hospitality with anything other than eager obedience? Since God has done so much for us, nothing he demands of us should be any kind of burden. You see, if you're not walking in the grace of God, if you're not walking with an attitude and a heart and a mind that understands God reached down and saved me purely out of grace and I did nothing to deserve it, I did nothing to bring it about, he chose me, he redeemed me, he saved me, he gave me his spirit, he has done everything and I didn't deserve it. If you have that kind of mindset, it tends to make you more gracious toward other people. You see, if you have this religious sort of, uh, I'm, I'm right with God, I, I, my relationship with God is based on the things that I do and the merit that I bring about, then you tend to have a critical, uh, condescending view toward others, a, a hypocritical, pharisaical uh, kind of mindset. But once we understand the radical kind of grace that God has given us, it makes us more generous, more hospitable toward others. So when he says seek to show hospitality, you've got to have something motivating you to obey that command. And, and if it is, if, if the only thing that is motivating you is this idea like, well, I feel like I should do a little bit better. I feel like I should do a little bit more, you know, and, and maybe God will bless me for doing it. If that's your motivator, you will not practice hospitality very much, at least consistently. But if your mindset is God saved me when I was a wretched, miserable sinner deserving none of his grace, none of his mercy, when you have that mindset and God lavished his grace on me in ways that are overwhelming, it's going to lead you to be willing to be more hospitable. You know, the parable Many of us have heard the parable of the unforgiving servant, the servant who had been forgiven so much, and then he turned around and he was unwilling to forgive other people. Well, that principle that Jesus teaches us in that parable could hold true. It could be the the inhospitable servant. When God has so welcomed us in, in our lives, into his life, how could we do anything but practice hospitality toward others? 1 John 4, 11 says, If God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. The second thing that we see in this text and and given the context of it is that hospitality is a sacrificial act of worship to God. It is a sacrificial act of worship to God. 
You know, hospitality really is a sacrifice. It doesn't come easily. Okay, if you're just waiting for it to be easy and to be the right time and have, have your house perfect and have the, the, the kids are rested up and there's not school the next day and, and, and you've got enough money and you're waiting for everything to line up perfectly. So, okay, we can do hospitality now. All the stars have aligned. You're not going to do it. It's not easy. It takes time. It takes intention. Hospitality takes effort, money, hard work. It's a risk, as Jared talked about. Sometimes we welcome people in, and then there's a potential that they could hurt us or disappoint us. When you open your home, you make yourself vulnerable, and you give of yourself, and that always comes with a little bit of a risk, right? But we need to, we need to understand. Sometimes we assess them. We, we look at all that risk, we look at all of that input, all of the work that goes into hospitality, and we begin to do sort of a, a cost-benefit analysis. Like, is this going to be worth it for me to do this? Is, is, this going to, is this not going to take too much? Is it going to be okay? Often what we do is we begin to evaluate the worthiness of the ones that we're thinking about practicing hospitality. And, and we can begin to come up with reasons of, you know, maybe I really shouldn't invite them over. You know, you know I, I don't really know them very well. They're a little bit different. I think their personality is just different than, than I am. Uh, you know, I think they might be Republicans or Democrats. I don't really, you know, we've talked a little bit at church, and, and I don't really enjoy talking with them that much. We don't have that much in, in common. They're a little bit older than us. Their, their kids are grown, and, and our kids are still at home. Uh, you know, they, they've got kids, and if we invite them into our home, our, our white carpet might get messed up or our, our vase, that vase might get broken. There might get a scratch on the wall. You know, I remember a couple years ago when they said that offensive thing to me and, you know, I've, I've forgiven them, but I just still remember that. I don't know that I want to have them into our home. I don't know that I want to spend any time outside of church with them. And so we begin to evaluate the worthiness of the person. But what's going on here is that when we make this assessment, we are determining the worthiness of the person. But the reality is, as Christians, we don't practice hospitality based on the worthiness of our guest, but on the worthiness of our God. You see, this is an act of sacrifice, not just purely for these other people that we're welcoming and inviting into our home, but, but it is an, an act of worship to God. You see again in our context, verses 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And so with that in mind, with this idea of presenting your body, which means the totality of who you are, give everything that you are to God because of God's mercy and his salvation that he's given to you. Because of that, present your very life to God as a living sacrifice. That's what we're called to do. And it's in that context then that he begins to use these commands, whether it's the commands that he uses in, in verses three through eight to use your spiritual gifts for the benefit of the church, or whether it's the command in verse nine to love or the ver in verse nine to abhor what is evil and hold to what is good, to outdo one another in showing honor, to not be slothful, but to be fervent in spirit. All of those commands you see are coming from this person who has been so impacted by the grace of God and who says, because God has done this for me, therefore I'm giving my life to God. And once you do that, once you make that commitment, 
Once you've come to that place in your life that my life isn't mine, I don't make my decisions based on what I feel like doing. I don't make my decisions about, you know, based on the worthiness of this person and what they have done or haven't done, who they are or who they are not. I, I obey this command to be hospitable and all of those commands because I am worshiping God with my life. And I'm doing with my life what God wants me to do, not what I want to do. So what does that do with all of our excuses then when it comes to practicing hospitality? I don't have time or there's too much commitment. I don't really like those people that, you know, they might mess up my house. All of those things get checked. They get put to the side because we do what God calls us to do, not what we want to do or don't want to do, not what is convenient or inconvenient at the moment. We obey God because our lives belong to him. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Hospitality is a sacrifice, but it's not just a sacrifice toward other people. It is a sacrifice of worship to God. And once we give our lives to God, once we come to that place, we will be ready to practice hospitality. It's not based on our convenience or the worthiness of the people we are serving. It is based on the glory of God and his worthiness. Number three, we see that hospitality comes from a renewed mind. Hospitality comes from a renewed mind. The giving of our body to the Lord is fulfilled in these verses as we refuse to conform to the world and instead allow our minds to be transformed so that we become obedient to the will of God. Again, look at verses 2 and 3. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then he begins to unpack that. What does that look like to give your body? What does it look like to give your life to the Lord and he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What are we called to do? What, what is this giving our lives? What is this giving our bodies to the Lord? What does that look like? And he says, this is what it looks like. Don't be conformed to the mold of this world. You see, the, the world has a mold for you. It, it has expectations for you. Our culture and every culture has certain ways of living and certain expectations. This is what you're supposed to do with your life. This is what you're supposed to have. This is the kind of career that you're supposed to have. This is the kind of car that you're supposed to drive. These are the kind of friends that you're supposed to have. This is what you are supposed to do with your time. The world has those, uh, those expectations for you. And so often what we do, this word conform, it, it has the idea almost of just kind of fitting into a mold, uh, right? There's a mold and you just pour uh, something into it. It just conforms to that mold. And that's what so many of us do when it comes to the world. The world tells you you're supposed to have this size of a house. You're supposed to spend this much on a car. Your car shouldn't be this old. You're supposed to have your children in all of these events and activities. Uh, th this is the kind of 
uh, television you're supposed to watch. This is the kind of music that you're supposed to listen to. It has all of these expectations for you. And if we're not careful, all we do is just step into that. We just, we just pour our lives into that mold. And we look like everybody else around us. We talked about the world not too long ago, but isn't it amazing? Why do we all live the way that we live? You know, you go to different places in the world and they live in, in very different ways, right? They have very different, there's very different customs and practices. Why do they live that way and we live this way? It's because of our culture. That's, that's the world around us influencing us. And so this just seems like normal. This seems like what we're supposed to do with our lives. But Paul says, don't do that. Because of what God has done for you in redeeming you and save you, you need to present your lives, your bodies as a living sacrifice. And what that means is stop conforming to the world. That's really what this, this is an active verb here. It, it says be not conformed, but, but it has the idea of a present tense. Stop being conformed. You're being conformed right now. Don't be conformed to the world. Don't live the way the world is telling you to live. Instead, what you need to do is be transformed. This is the word for metamorphosis. This means like an inner transformation. This means become completely different. Become transformed. And how do you do that? By the renewal, by the making new of your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so you don't let the world shape your mind. You don't let the world shape your life. Instead, you, you bring your heart and your mind, your life to the Word of God, and you say, I'm going to allow the Word of God to shape my life. I'm not going to do what I see on television. I'm not going to do what I see all the other moms in our community doing, or all the other dads or, 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 or adults doing in our community. I'm not just going to go with the flow and do what's, what's happening here. I'm going to bring my life to the Word of God, and I'm going to say, what does the Word of God say? How does the Word of God say I should use my time and money and my talents? How does the Word of God, what does it call me to do? And we allow our minds to be renewed. We begin to think in different ways. We don't just think about in the ways that, the, that television and movies and, and music present to us. We think differently from the world. And as a result of thinking differently, we begin to live differently. Now, this has an application for us as well when it comes to hospitality. I think one of the chief impediments to practicing hospitality is worldliness. We think like the world too much. We, we think, you know, the, the world is concerned with your, your own self-interest. And we talked about that a little bit last week or, or the week before. The, the world is concerned about my house and my time and my career and my reputation and my comfort and my safety and my family. The world puts all of that first and it tells you those are the things that you ought to live for. Those are the things that you ought to put First, your career, your job, that, that's what comes first in your life. But the word of God tells us, no, no, no. You need to think of others before you think of yourselves. And so one of the great impediments to hospitality, I think, is that we begin to, that we continue to live like the world. We begin to, we continue to have a mindset that says, what is most important is me and mine. And if I have anything left over, then maybe I'll give it in, in hospitality. But as we begin to let the mind of Christ come into our lives, as our minds are renewed, they're made new by looking to Christ and beginning to live like Christ lived, we begin to say, you know what? 
My time's not my own. You know, I, I'd rather go home and rest tonight. But there are brothers and sisters that are in need of the community. There are people who are lonely. There are people who are hurting. You, you know, this money, I, I would love to take that nicer vacation. But you know what? You, you know where vacations come on God's priority list for your life? I'll give you a hint. I don't know exactly, but it's not very high. God doesn't care about your vacations. God doesn't care. You, turn to the passage that tells you that you ought to really have everything saved up in your 401k for retirement. You know, the only person I see in the Bible who's thinking about retirement is the person that Jesus says, you fool, you have put these things back and, and you have not been, been generous. You, you have thought about tearing down your barns and building them. That's the only place I find in the Bible where a person's really concerned about their retirement. And so the person whose mind is renewed by the word of God says, you know, things are a little bit tight. It's going to cost money to have people over and, and open our home up and have a, a meal. It's going to take time. It's going to take effort. It's going to take a little bit extra money in the budget. We might have to cut some things out of our weekly schedule to be able to do that. But God's priorities are higher. And, and, and our minds are renewed. They're shaped by the word of God rather than the cultural expectations of our community. So hospitality comes as we have renewed minds. Hospitality, next, is an act of genuine brotherly love. An act of genuine brotherly, brotherly love. Verse number nine, let love be genuine. Verse number 10, love one another with brotherly affection. As you go through the New Testament, one of the things that you'll find in all of the commands to practice hospitality, all of the commands to practice hospitality seem to come in this context of talking about love. You see, hospitality is an act of love. It's an act of genuine love. You know, how do we know that our love is, is real for one another? We gather weekly and we say, boy, I love our church family. But all we do is gather weekly. That's, that's love that we talk about. But when we begin to open our homes, when we begin to open our lives to one another and invite our brothers and sisters in Christ to share life with us, when we do that, it moves our love from this superficial kind of love of just word into a love indeed and in truth that John talks about. Love not only in, in, in word, but in talk, but in deed and in truth. Our love is genuine when we begin to practice hospitality. But not only that, our, 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 our hospitality is a family practice. Verse 10, let brotherly love continue. It's an act of brotherly love. Rosaria Butterfield in her book on hospitality says, hospitality makes strangers into friends and friends into family. If we want the, the feel of a family in this church, we're going to have to open our doors to one another, as we've, as we've already said. If, if we want the feel of family, we're going to have to start doing what families do. Families spend time together. I, I doubt there are very many people here that say, with, with grown children, oh no, here come my kids. I, I, I really don't want them here. I mean, maybe once in a while, maybe that comes across your mind after you've been babysitting all week and I, I need a little bit of a break. But, but most of us, I, th I think when we see our children come, it delights our hearts. You don't worry, what's the bathroom look like? What, what does the house look like? Do we have any food? 
Oh no, I'm, I, my hair, look, look at the way I look. We don't care about that. These are our children. Come on in. We love them. If your brother or your sister were to show up and knock on your door, you, you don't you know, crack it open and say, uh, the house is a mess. I don't really want you in here today. No, you come on in. Sorry, the house is a wreck. Uh, but, but look, come in. Let's sit down and talk because you're delighted in their presence. You love spending time with them. Let brotherly love continue. Hospitality is an act of brotherly love. It's an act of genuine love. Finally, hospitality must be vigorously pursued. Now you see that in most English translations. It says something like in verse 13, to show. And I would just say this, that's a really kind of weak translation of that, I think. Seek to show hospitality. It's kind of like, That word seek is translated in every other place, or or at least many other places, 31 times in the New Testament. It is translated as some form of persecute, either the noun or the verb persecute or persecutor. It it means to intensely pursue something. The the idea of persecution is like you're, you're hunting them down. Remember the Apostle Paul? He got letters because he was persecuting the early church and he's chasing them down. He was on the road to Damascus when the Lord finally opened his eyes, but he was hunting down Christians. He was persecuting them. That's this word here. It's to actively, vigorously pursue something. And so when it says seek to show hospitality, it's not just saying, hey, if you have a little time, maybe you could seek to show. No, no. Actively, vigorously pursue hospitality in your life. It's the word uh, in, in Philippians 3.12, it's translated this, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, Paul says. I'm pressing on to it. I'm striving after it. Strive in other places. Persecute in other places. Hospitality is not something we sit back. What this means, it's not something that we just sit back and wait for it to happen. If you are not actively pursuing hospitality, it will not happen. And I think probably that's where some of us are. We say, you know, I know that I probably should practice hospitality. And if if that opportunity opens itself up, then maybe I would practice hospitality. You know, if I got to know somebody or if I if 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 something just worked out just right, I would open my home. If somebody showed up and knocked on the door, I'd let them in and offer them something to eat. But that's not the approach that we're supposed to have. We are to actively pursue hospitality. What this also means is we cannot allow impediments to keep us from practicing it. Pursue it with vigor, with zeal we're to pursue it. So if something gets in the way, if something makes it difficult, you don't just throw up your hands and say, well, you know, I kind of had some intentions to be hospitable, but it just didn't happen. No, you, you push through those things in order to practice hospitality. So this morning, as we, as we close, as we conclude our service this morning, I ask Daniel to come, and I, I just want to end up with the application. We need to begin to practice hospitality. So what I would encourage you to do is, is we don't have community groups going on right now. Some of you are, belong to community groups, others don't. Just begin to invite people. 
Even if you're not ready to invite somebody in your home, Sunday afternoons are a great time. Say, hey, let's go to lunch together. Let's spend a little bit of time and get to know one another. Get to begin to build these relationships in which we can practice hospitality. We are not having community uh, as we ought to. And I think one of the ways that that community will happen as we begin to obey this command. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we do pray um, as a result of your grace, as in response to your grace, as a sacrifice of worship to you, that we as a church, we begin to be hospitable toward one another. Lord, that we would open our homes, that we would open our lives and begin to invite people in. And as we do that, I pray that you would bless our efforts, Lord, even small efforts in that direction. I pray that you would just pour out your grace, begin to build deeper relationships here, begin to bless us with the kind of close-knit fellowship that we see in your New Testament church. And we pray it in the name of Christ. Amen.